This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portsy. My name's Andrew Carroll. And today, two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. That's right, we're talking walking again. <laughs> Andrew, run down the second half of Chris Walken's career. You know, there's a good podcast spin-off called Talk and Walken where we talk about each of his movies and we run for like seven years. Don't don't yeah, cut this. away. Cut, cut this, this. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Walken's 90s began with his portrayal of two criminal industrialists, Frank White in King of New York, which we've already covered, and Max Schreck in Tim Burton's Batman Returns. His best-known roles in this decade, however, are cameos in two films written by Quentin Tarantino, one of which he also directed. The first was Tony Scott's True Romance, in which Walken played a sinister but jovial Sicilian gangster opposite Dennis Hopper. And the other was Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, in which Walken gave this film's second most famous monologue about hiding a wristwatch up his ass. He followed these up with a rare leading role in the rom-com A Business Affair opposite Jonathan Price and French actress Carol Bouquet and the action thriller Nick of Time opposite Johnny Depp. His collaborations with Abel Ferreira continued in this period as he filmed The Addiction, The Funeral and New Rose Hotel. In 2001, Walken appeared and flew in the Spike Jonze-directed video for Fatboy Slim's track Weapon of Choice. Christopher Walken received his second and to this day last Best Supporting Actor nomination for the Steven Spielberg picture Catch Me If You Can. He collaborated twice more with Tony Scott in Man on Fire and Domino. And in 2012, Walken co-starred in Martin McDonough's ensemble comedy thriller Seven Psychopaths. By the 2020s, Walken was back on TV in Stephen Merchant's BBC comedy The Outlaws and the Apple TV Plus series Severance. In 2024, he will play the Emperor Shaddam IV in Denis Villeneuve's Dune Part 2. If we ever see it. If we ever see it, yeah. How was your rewatch of The Outlaws? I didn't. I knew you were never going to watch yeah, it. Yeah, of course I didn't. Yeah, episode, yeah. no, I didn't watch Andrew, it at all. I didn't Andrew touch that TV? shit. Come on. <laughs> um, I, I have, you know, I watched more TV this year than I have in the last ten years. So I'd you say. watched two shows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. T- t- three. Uh, I was finished Succession as well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How was your Midnight Mass watch going? Uh, good. I'm on episode five, I think, at the moment. Okay. So there's only three left. Yeah. Basically, Are you yeah. enjoying it. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Thoughts on the succession finale? Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it, yeah. Glad none of those fucking idiots got to got to be CEO. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dopes. Um, so I think we discussed at length what makes Walken such an iconic actor in the last mm. episode. Smooth voice. Yeah. Quirky line deliveries. Oh. Oh. <laughs> you know I love money. Um, his ability to move between charming and sinister at a moment's notice. I think what's interesting about splitting up his career into two parts the way that we've done, though, is that, like, following his Best Supporting Actor Oscar win early on his career for The Deer Hunter, there was a couple of years where Walken was a leading man or, like, a co-lead in some pretty big Hollywood movies. Like, mm. we talked about The Dead Zone in the last episode. That's, like, a Stephen King adaptation all on his shoulders. We also discussed At Close Range and King of New York. But there were other ones, too, like uh, The Dogs of War, Brainstorm, Communion, The Comfort of Strangers, MacBain. Nothing to do with the Simpsons <laughs> character. McBain to base, under attack by call me Nazis. <laughs> and um, they all had varying degrees of critical success, but most of them were not hits at the box office. Mm. And, and I don't think Walker's career was necessary on a, on the Wayne, because like, he was still in a Bond movie, a Batman movie, Wayne's World 2, Biloxi Blues mm. was a big hit as well. But um, I don't think he had reached the level of fame he has today at that time. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. I think his career got a huge boost and he became introduced to a whole new generation of moviegoer when he began embracing his inherent character actorness mm. from the early 90s onward. And I think you look at the trajectory of his career and at that time you see that he begins taking less leading roles and instead gravitates towards these kind of flashier supporting roles where he just gets to go big and just bring a ton of heft to mm. movies from the sidelines. And um, he did that in like, you know, True Romance and Pulp Fiction, two of the most iconic movies of the 90s. But you also see it in less iconic, but I still take pretty good movies like um, Nick of Time, The Addiction, The Prophecy, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which is like such a Quentin Tarantino knockoff, yeah. but is kind of one of the better ones. Um, Last Man Standing, the Walter Hill movie, which is a remake of Wajimbo, but sound like Prohibition era America. It's pretty good. Um, Sleepy Hollow. And I think in all those movies, a unique selling point of them to viewers is that you, you get to see Walk and go ham for a couple of scenes, most likely given a cool, compelling monologue. Or in the case of his, like, word, the Sleepy Hollow performance, um, just, just looking great. Hissing at people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, looking really scary. Yeah. Um, oh, 
<laughs> It'd be funny if he did that. Yeah, instead of his. Oh, yeah. Um, it's like no headless horseman. Oh, <laughs> I'll make gravy out of you, little girl. Um, I think that and his numerous times hosting SNL as well. Like, and he started doing mm. that in the nineties. Has further cemented him as an icon. And I think someone who like everybody knows and can do an impression of. You know, as yeah, we've just yeah. been doing yeah. the last couple of minutes. And um, I think my favorite one is when they're the presidential hoax and Conan O'Brien had him on someone oh, like yeah. created like a fake campaign for Christopher Walken and uh, they asked him uh, what would his, his campaign slogan be he was like no more zoos <laughs> there's an argument to be made for that yes. but I'll leave that to um, a different podcast PETA, PETA yeah, yeah. Um, from the Hunger Games no <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, I know you mentioned the last episode that he's been a less good movie since 2012 mm. and um, I think that's probably down to two things like one like it's an age thing like mm. he's 80 now but I also think there's just less of the type of mid-budget adult focus movies where he tended to excel being made yeah but I'm always still happy to see him you know and like I think he's doing great work in Severance on Apple TV Plus and he's going to be in Dune Part 2 so mm-hmm. uh, that's exciting yeah um, will we talk about his cameos in yeah. Romance and Pulp sure. Fiction yeah so I don't, we both didn't re-watch the movies just the seeds were walking yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, what do you think of True Romance, his scene? Any thoughts I think that? it's a great scene. Uh, there's lots of words in that scene I can't say. Yes. Um, so after Karen's a character played by Christian Slater and Alabama played by Patricia, Ar- Patricia Arquette flee Detroit for LA hoping to offload drugs they stole, this, is, this Sicilian gangster played by Walken visits Clarence's father Clifford played by Dennis Hopper to find the drugs and in that scene Clifford mocks the Sicilian who kills him and instructs his men to pursue Clarence to LA where a major showdown will take place. So I think it's a scene that's for most of it is mostly on Dennis Hopper. Yes. Just that's insulting true. this uh uh this guy who he knows is going to kill him and yes. is trying to have have a bit of fun with his last his last words. I also think he knows that if he gets tortured there's a chance that he might give up his son. Yeah. So he's like, I would just want my death to be as swift as possible. Yeah. yeah. But I can't make it too obvious that that's the thing. So he's telling this giving this history lesson about Sicily that yeah. in just the most vulgar offensive way possible mm. it's just designed to get Walken to lose his head but at the same time Walken doesn't want to appear like he's losing his head so he's laughing yeah. at the whole time but the whole scene you're like who is in control and mm. like it's about everything that's not being said and you know it's going to explode into violence but like the question is when yeah. and who wins the scene ultimately is very interesting that's true yeah and it's maybe the, like the best example of uh, Hawkins' ability to just turn on a dime and go from charming and affable to like cold and violent and um, I think before Clifford had even started talking the Sicilian knows he's going to have him killed so he kind of he lets Clifford have his last words you know gangster's code of honour and whatever um, until Clifford starts talking about how the Sicilians are descended from the Moors which were uh, people from North Africa in sort of the uh, I think at the turn of the first millennium, I guess. So, 1000 AD, roughly. I don't know. I don't know my history. Anyone else? Um, <laughs> email me. the podcast. <laughs> I, I actually Googled about that and I think I typed in worse Sicilians and like the first thing I Googled was descended from the Moors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like, it's that's, that bit's so funny because he's like, um, he's like, you know, Sicilian is, Sicilians are descended from the Moors and he doesn't say the Moors at the start, but <laughs> Christopher Walker's like, come again? <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think, I, I think you're right that Walken was always going to have him killed. But I think Walken pulling the trigger himself mm. is, wasn't part of the plan. No, he, yeah. Doesn't he say like I haven't killed someone since 1984? Yeah, yeah. Oh, which is really scary. Yeah. Like, um, pot, eggplant. <laughs> you're a cantaloupe. Apparently, that's the one bit of the scene Tarantino doesn't like. He doesn't like the, the that wasn't in the script. Oh. Him saying cantaloupe. Get over it. I know. That's <laughs> Apparently, Tarantino hadn't written the true romance scene with Walken in mind, but um, upon seeing it, he wrote his Pulp Fiction monologue specifically for him. Mm. And I was meant to mention this in the last episode, but there's a great episode of the podcast, The Rewatchables, where Tarantino guests on it to talk about King of New York in depth. And he discusses work with Walken in it, obviously. And he says about him in Pulp Fiction, my whole thing with him was, I know he likes monologues. It's a three page monologue. And I promised him I wouldn't cut a word. So, like, that's how he enticed Walken mm. to do it, which is really cool, I think. Uh, one interesting fact I found out this year was that he, to, like, work up the kind of spit he needed for the monologue, he'd, like, swallow a spoonful of hot sauce before each take. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I had to kind of think for perfection. Yeah. So, like, 
the character of uh, the boxer Butch, played by Bruce Willis, who's my favourite character in Pulp Fiction and my favourite performance. Um, he's on the run from gangster Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames, because um, Marcellus had paid him a lot of money to take a dive in a match, but instead he bet the money on himself and won. So, and now he has to like skip town with his girlfriend, but he realises that she forgot to pack this gold watch he owns and he risks his life by returning home to get it. And we learn the significance of the gold watch to Butch in this flashback to him as a boy where he's visited that home by his uh, a friend of his late father named uh, Captain Coons. Like that's mm. walking. And Coons explains that he and Butch's father were POWs in Vietnam together and his father died there after five years, but you know, Coons was rescued after seven. And Coons gives Butch the gold watch, which it turns out belonged to Butch's father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather before him. And that uh, Butch's father was so determined to pass on the watch to his son that he hid it in his ass for five years <laughs> and then asked Coons yeah. to do the same. And um, yeah, what do you think of this scene? <laughs> I love it. It's so funny. Uh, just even in, in isolation, where he's like, five long years he wore this watch up his ass. He died of dysentery. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, he seems almost annoyed to have to be doing this. You think so? <laughs> yeah, I think he seems quite bitter about it. He's like doing this. He's like, it seems sort of bitter and as if Coons is like trying his best to do, to do this with all the gravitas the actual act of hiding a watch up his ass lacks <laughs> uh, while knowing all, knowing all this and so he he just seems a little kind of put out the fact that he did all this for little to no reward and this kid isn't really know the, gonna know the significance of it of the act until long after Coons is probably dead and perhaps of dysentery and um, and like they'll never see each other again and he, I don't think this guy's going to get like a reward or anything for hiding a watch up his ass <laughs> and it's not really something he can tell anyone else because it's a fucking humiliating story <laughs> yeah because I I love how at the beginning of it he's talking to the kid as an adult you would talk to a kid mm. in the circumstances like he's like hello little man boy and <laughs> he's, he, but the more he talks the more he just like, starts telling the kid this like Things that just aren't appropriate. Yeah, yeah. And like, he's like, as if he's working through it in mm. real time. And like, he, he doesn't need to tell Butch, I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass for two years. <laughs> and then he's like, now, little man, I give this watch to you. And I was rewatching the scene on YouTube and someone commented that Butch takes it so unceremoniously. He's just like, he just like grabs it. <laughs> oh, a- the way your father saw it, this watch was your birthright. He'd be damned if he let some slob put his greasy hands on this watch. Yeah. Uh, so much fun. Yes. And um, I also do think it does add a lot to Pulp Fiction because like, it is explaining the significance of the watch. Yeah. And like, you can see that at some point Butch recognised the significance of the watch. Yeah. yeah. And I, if not the significance of the act. Exactly. Of hiding it up your ass for and five for seven years in total. <laughs> two years up one man's ass, five years up another's. Yeah. I think it was two years up uh, only two. two years up Chris Chris Walken's ass, five years up his dad's ass. And words I, I never thought I'd be saying on this <laughs> yes. podcast. Um I like that um I think Pulp Fiction is all about like fate and chance. Mm. And I do think yeah. that, that scene has kind of adds to that because uh, Walken at one point says like if it had been me who had not made it, Major Coolidge would be talking to my son, Jim. The way it turned out, I'm talking to you, Butch. So there is a kind of a... Yeah. Uh, like, it does tie into the themes of the movie. And um, I also think it's a scene that could... You imagine a studio exec reading it and being like, do we need this in the movie? Because it, it is important, but it's mm. so, like, loosely connected to, yeah. like, the events of the movie. But I do think it it just does so much to bolster kind of Pulp Fiction's like off-kilter tone and the mm. sort of black comedy and um, the scene it reminded me a lot of is the Mike Yanagida scene in Fargo you remember the scene where um, Frances McDormand meets her the old friend from yeah, school and yeah. he, he lies about his wife being dead you know that whole story you remember that in Fargo I, I know the bit you're talking about but I don't remember the specifics of the scene he tells this whole story about how devastating is that his wife died and then Frances McDormand learns from someone else that like he's lying and then that <laughs> is what inspires her to go back after Macy. Right. Because she's like, people lie all the time. Mm. It's great. Um, <laughs> will we move on to Nick of Time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Johnny Depp uh, plays a mild-mannered accountant named Jean who is looking after his young daughter, Lynn, after the death of his ex-wife. On a trip to LA together, uh, the pair soon after arriving in the city are pulled aside by two people posing as cops, Mr. Smith, played by Christopher Walken, and Mrs. Jones, played by Roma Mafia. 
Kidnapping Lynn, the pair say they will kill her unless Jean assassinates the governor of California, Pippa Marsha Mason, with the movie playing out in uh, real time. Mm. And obviously, you know, Jean doesn't want to kill this politician and tries in several different ways to get away from Mr. Smith and get his daughter back. And after uh, one of these attempts is foiled, Mr. Smith recounts a chilling story to Jean that uh, you people listening to this pod will hear now, which is one of the greatest monologues of Walken's career, like maybe ever. <laughs> there was this guy, big guy, Irish Italian, red face, black haired, jolly son of a bitch. Wait a second. Nobody could make me laugh like him. He made a science of collecting jokes. Closed my bars together and I could count. And he was a pal. I loved the crazy Mick. I'm not ashamed to say that, but he was a fuck up. He had his image of himself. He thought it was a con man. Always trying to shave the edge. He was nickel and dime. I'll always miss him. Tell me why. Tell you why what? Tell me why I miss him. He's dead? That's right. He is dead, but tell me why. How do I know? I don't... don't... Tell me why he's dead. Because you killed him. That's right, I did. I killed him. He fucked up one too many times, so I put a bullet in his eye. Then I put two more into him just to make sure. Now, that was somebody I loved. I loved him. But I got the call. I put him down like a sick animal. So, if you got doubts about what's going to happen, if you don't deliver, let me tell you something. I made gravy out of your little girl just to season that black Irish cocksucker's meat. I'll make gravy out of your little girl. If you got doubts. It's the way he growls it. I'll make gravy out of your little girl. <laughs> um, what did you think of Nick and Tom? I think we both liked it, right? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what I was going to get into because I, I looked at it uh, briefly online and saw that, you know, bit of a critical flop, bit of a box office bomb. Um... Well, it's got staying power. It looks like shit. Um, it doesn't oh, really? look great. I think it looks good. <laughs> it look. I don't know. Maybe I don't, I'm just generally not a fan of when things look really washed out and kind of the light. All the light is too bright. But I think it suits kind of the the headspace that um, Johnny Depp's character Gene sure. is in. Yeah, because it's it, it, like it really captures um, the headspace of someone going through what is essentially the worst day of their life with all the like miscommunications, sweat and shivering nervousness that comes in because in the, the first like half an hour of the movie every time someone says something to it once the plot to kill the governor is in motion it, and every time someone says something to him they have to repeat it like he's like huh twice or three times more just to, just for, for to get it into his head he's like huh? huh did you think Johnny Depp's performance was good in this I thought he was a little sleepy like, um, I, I think I would be a lot more sweaty and panicky and I was kind of picturing like what if Tom Cruise was in the movie I think well that's a fair point but I think he's kind of tr- trying to keep it under wraps as much as he can because he knows he's always being watched yeah and yeah. he might just be like a naturally sort of toned down person yeah you know, yeah yeah I thought it, I felt to me after him being in like Edward Scissorhands Arizona Dream Dead Man all these kind of movies where he's playing these like eccentric types Ed Wood mm. that he might have been a little bit lost just playing like a regular dude yeah maybe yeah yeah that's true and he, he very very rarely plays a regular dude in yeah. fairness to him um, but I think Batam's direction and Walken really do sell the sort of like yeah they really like elevate that movie kind of, the movie yeah. um, like the script already has plenty of good stuff and Walken's performance and unique delivery kind of elevated um, I did find myself constantly wondering what the fuck is up with this movie that this guy with a definite criminal past can end up hired by like political lobbyists <laughs> it's such just it's like it's one of many strange things about this movie um, like this movie has so many holy shit what moments yeah. like yeah um, which are which are always fun, even if it, even if it seems like the film could fall apart at any moment. Mm. Um, like the dream sequence in the middle of it all, for kind instance. of amazing. Yeah, really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it made me realise just how crazy Christopher Wister- Qu- 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 Christopher <laughs> Walken, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Christopher Walken's hair is because when he's shot uh, in the middle of the movie and in the dream sequence, and uh, he he's kind of going off the deep end at the end, and his hair is just like totally wild and out of place, and it looks like a wig. Mm. It's nuts. Yeah, I just think this is like a prime example of why I like revisiting these like Hollywood thrillers from the 80s or 90s because 
I think at the time just critics were flooded with them. Mm. So the ones that were like pretty entertaining but a bit disposable, like Nick of Time, got middling to bad reviews and were sort of slammed for being derivative. But you watch them now where there's like a dearth of these sort of expensive looking thrillers with big stars and you're just like, this is exciting. Yeah. Like, I think yeah, it looks great. I think it's got the grain and the warm colour. Walkins on fire. Like I could watch one of these like a week. Yeah. And um, I do think it's like, it's riffing and blending together both the sort of types of hit thrillers that Hitchcock would make mm, and also yeah. the sort of like paranoid political thrillers of the 70s or early 80s. But it's also sort of stripped the depth out of both of them to like, I don't think this movie's really saying anything. I think it's just like a thrill ride. I don't know about that. I think it has more to say than people think. Like, just visually, it says a lot that everyone that helps Gene is of either like Central American or African American descent and working mostly low-income jobs at a high-class hotel while the villains are all important That's white true, men in positions Charles of power. Charles Dutton and Yule Vasquez yeah, yeah, in the hotel. Yeah. That's then, kind of a cool sequence where like he's going through the the parts of hotels that you don't usually yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. And it, like at the end where... Um, uh, the big climax is happening, and he's trying to he's trying to get back to his daughter to rescue her, and all, uh, the security is chasing him, but they're all being like trapped by different contraptions in the hotel. Like one guy gets shoved against an, a, a sparking electrical box by a like a laundry trolley or yeah. something like that. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's really fun. Um, so I'm not sure what exactly it's trying to say, but I think it it is sort of. It's not blowout. Is what I'm trying to say. No, you know it's no, I mean? no, of course not. But um, I think it's got some something. It's more. It's not empty-headed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No. For sure. And um, on walking, like I think Nick of Time is like another example of him pivoting to the flashier supporting role as opposed to the leading man as he got older. Because like I think Walken probably could have played the death part in the late seventies or mm. in the eighties. I'm yeah. sure he'd be good. But like Gene's kind of a boring character. And Mister Smith is just way more fun to be had. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I love the way Badham shoots Mr. Smith because there's like a bunch of times in the movie where Gene does what we all would do in the situation. Like he tries to get help from a stranger, like slip them a message covertly. Yeah. And um, and I think like it's actually a pretty cool movie to watch and be like, what would I do in this situation? Yeah, yeah. But um, every time Gene does this, like Mr. Smith just pops out of nowhere like a jump scare yeah. or will be shown like circling Gene like the shark from Jaws. Yeah. And he, he almost is supernatural and there's that dream sequence where he is literally depicted as Supernatural where he gets shot in the face and then you see him again and yeah. Joy Depp's like I killed you <laughs> <laughs> it's great um, and like walking can be such a warm present in movies but also has this ability to um, make it seem like there's just no soul behind his eyes as well hmm. and his performance at Nick of Time is all that and you're never like he's bluffing about killing the kid. Yeah, you yeah. never doubt no. his yeah, sincerity. Yeah, for sure. And he's also really tall. Like, he's like six foot and um, he's framed in Nick of Time to make him look even more imposing. And he just totally dominates Depp. And you're never for a second like Depp could take him, even though Depp is 20 years younger than yeah. him. You know? <laughs> and um, the only thing we ever really learned about Mr. Smith's personal life is the story he tells about killing his friend for being a screw up. Um, would you ever need proof of Walken's quirky line readings just case in point yeah. right there yeah. but um, even down to his name like he's such a blank slate of a character that like I think a lot of skilled actors could play the part and bring something interesting and compelling to it but I don't think anyone could have been as laugh out loud funny but also genuinely bone chilling yeah, yeah. as he is and run away with the movie mm. and um, I actually had a question for you this is the second John Badham movie we've covered on the po- well I've covered on the mm. podcast can you rename the other one? Absolutely it's a not. Deep cut. No, <laughs> be good. It's the uh, Dracula of Frank Langella. Oh, okay. Yeah, he drew right, with yeah. Donald Pleasance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Nick of Time? I really love that line at the end where um, Depp's been in the bathroom for like ten minutes, because, or he apparently has been in the bathroom because your man he swapped clothes with uh, the hotel porter. Yeah, and um, really good scene. Yeah, he comes out of the bathroom stall at the end and walk and is like, "Hey, wait!" And Depp's like, "What?" Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. Yeah. Um, do you want to top at the funeral? Yes. Do you have the plot for it? Because I don't. I do not. I could. I could riff. <laughs> I could do. Please, something. by all means. So the movie is set in the 1930s and focuses on this Italian American crime family, the Tempios. Their younger brother, played by Vincent Gallo, has died and been fam- murdered. Been Even, murdered. Yeah. yeah, been shot, and the whole family is reunited for this funeral. And uh, his other two brothers, uh, Shez, played by Chris Penn, and Ray, played by Christopher Walken, are um, struggling to cope in different ways mm, with the killing. Very much so, yeah. You think you deserve to live? You killed a man. Two men are dead over this. 
Can you live with that on your conscience? Please, just let me go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just let me go. Once you pull a trigger, there's no going back. My wife, who don't even know you, has pleaded for your life. She asked me, let the law punish you, keep my hands clean. If Johnny had raped your girl, I would let you live for her sake, but... You acted out of anger, you're dangerous. You, you got no respect for life, people like you. Have no place in society, and jail is a kindness you don't deserve. I don't see I, I, I got a choice. Yes, you do. Don't pull the trigger. What about my sense of justice? What about me? You have the chance to do something good instead of something bad. And that's better than justice. Another Abel Ferrara joint yeah. starring Walking After King of New York in our last episode. And um, an interesting movie to rewatch after that because... On one level, it's pretty similar. Like it's like another lurid gangster crime thriller with like big ideas on its mind, mm. but it's it's more of an ensemble. It's a period piece, and I think I compared King of New York in our last episode to Goodfellas because like it's so stylish and it's a rise and fall narrative, and like the vibe of it is so intoxicating because it's kind of showing to viewers like why people would become involved in like a life of crime. Yeah. Whereas I think yeah. the funeral was more like The Irishman in that it's about the repercussions of yeah, the life very much so, yeah. and yeah. It's, a, it's just a film where every new revelation or character detail just drags its lead characters like further into the like moral abyss yeah, yeah. because like crime may be how the men of the Tempia family earned their wealth and were able to get everything they wanted and like including for Chez and Ray these beautiful families of their own but like they don't enjoy those things yeah, yeah. like the, the only one of the brothers who seemed relatively happy was Johnny who was murdered and like the movie begins with his funeral then you have Shez, the, the Chris Penn character. Chris Penn notably played Walk and Son in At Close Range and is mm, playing his yeah. brother, which is kind of cool. But um, One of the best screamers ever. My God. That bit yeah. where his face is purple and he's just like, you made a deal with the devil! Yeah, yeah. yeah I watched this movie with my mom. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> she did not enjoy it. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Yeah. I'm surprised you did. Yeah, oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, but not... Well, just the experience, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um... He's um, Chris Pan's character says is like really shown struggling with his mental health, which I, I think is down to like the, just the constant stress of his crime life or like the trauma he's been exposed to mm. over the, the many years because of it. They also say in the movie that Chez takes after his father in that respect. And then you have this Ray character, um, Pepe Walken, who he sees a child in flashback, like being forced to shoot somebody by his dad. And he's just so um, consumed with vengeance and also paranoia that he might be the next to get killed. And that he doesn't listen to his wife, Jean, played by Annabelle Sciorra, who's who's wonderful and kind of the heart of this movie, I think. When she says, like, just bury Johnny, like, let him take his fights with him. Because like she says to Ray later when they have a big fight, like, killing somebody else is not going to bring him back and you're the one who gave him a gun in the first mm. place and um, I actually think Jean in the scene with Johnny's girlfriend played by Gretchen Maul she sort of lays out the thesis statement for the movie because she tells Maul's character um, something like we should be celebrating Johnny's death and that you're not going to become one of the men in this crime family's wives yeah. like me and she says like they're criminals and there's absolutely nothing romantic about it mm. Um so yeah, what did you think of this? I really liked this. Yeah, I thought it was good. Uh, cool how it's like a grieving man or grieving men even sort of forced to reckon with how their life of crime influenced and sort of ultimately killed their youngest brother, even if he was sort of a bit more um, out there in terms of what he did. You know, he was uh, attending communist meetings and yeah. stuff and he was doing do, doing different things to them. Uh, pretty appropriate casting Vincent Gallo as a corpse, considering... It's a really good, like... Angry what young looks man like. performance, yeah, yeah. yeah, as well. Um, <laughs> <That's me. laughs> that just that's that yeah. up. <laughs> there's, the, there's the bit where he's gotten the shit kicked out of him by someone, and uh, Benicio del Toro or Chris Penn, one of them, is like, it's in the bar anyway, and he's like, you look better now than you ever did. What happened to you, to you the other day was a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's covered in bruises. Um, and you're right; it does feel like more, more of an ensemble piece than it does a walkathon, like King of New York did. Uh, all those bits where Christopher Walken is like, "I'll roast in hell," for like what is, he knows, like he's he's the he knows to get used to it now. Yeah, yeah, he knows he's done bad, unforgivable things, and he knows he'll be punished for them. But this kind of life is all he's ever known, and to turn his back on this life of violent crime would be impossible for him. It's sort of like that Macbeth line where he's like, "I'm in blood, stepped in so far that should I wait no more, returning where his tedious is going over." Or you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, pick pick your favorite. Um, 
and I do think it feels sort of slight and small like there's no Godfather or Goodfellas style plays or heists in it but with that said it's even on a smaller scale, it still somehow manages to feel Shakespearean. Hmm. I think, yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just really cool that it's a generational crime family epic, a revenge movie, and a murder mystery all wrapped up in ninety-five minutes. That feels satisfying. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of incredible. And hmm. I think King of New York is the same in that, like, it's a pretty short movie. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, is doing a lot. Um, yeah, like Ray is definitely the colder, more calculating of the three Tempio brothers, um, who, despite his wife's plea, is on the hunt for his brother's killer and. I think it's like out of like a mix of anger, fear, obligation, but also like the closer he gets to finding the culprit, the more he begins to question like his need for vengeance, like his wife's words linger with him. And um, I think you said something very astute when discussing walking in King of New York, where you said like the Frank White character in that movie, like presents himself as being fun and cheerful, except to his closest friends or to the unfortunate people he's about to kill. And it's in that moment you you sort of see like he's not those things, like he's vicious and willing to do whatever it takes to succeed. I think there are shades of Frank White in Ray Tempio, but in the same way the funeral strips the fun out of gangster films, I feel like Ray is Frank, but with that geniality stripped away and you're just left with the darkness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And um, just you get like a couple of pretty great scenes. Like uh, it is true that like it's more of an ensemble. And like I, I think you could make the case that like Penn is the leader of the movie. You could also kind of sort of say Gallo is. You could sort of say Skewer is. Mm. But um, they all own sections of the movie. Yeah, that little bit where uh, David Patrick Kelly is given the oh, yeah. communist speech is really good. And Edie Falco is in the background in that scene as well. Oh no way! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just saw her name in the credits, <laughs> and she's in the addiction. Hmm. But um, yeah, the two scenes with Walking Out Spotlight are um the fight with Gene on the porch of their house where. Ray, in a similar way to Frank and King New York, tries to like justify his crimes, but in the funeral, he's talking about it more from a religious perspective because uh, Gene is Catholic and says like he's going to burn in hell for what he's done and what he's about to do. And he replies like, "You want to get deep on this shit? All them Catholic scholars say everything we do depends on free choice, but at the same time, they say we need the grace of God to do what's right. Now follow that, Gene. If I do something wrong, it's because God didn't give me the grace to do what's right. Nothing happens without His permission. So if this world sucks, it's His fault. I'm only working with what I've been given." And she says like the people they find with bullet holes in their skulls, that's God's fault. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? And he's like, I'm ashamed of nothing. I didn't make the world. And she's like, but you're not doing anything to make it better. And he's like, yeah, and I'll roast in hell. And then that comes back where, spoiler, but like, he's worked out who killed Johnny and he has the murder at gunpoint and they're begging for their life. And they say like, don't pull the trigger. And he's like, what about my sense of justice? And the clear replies like, you have the chance to do something good instead of something bad. And that's better than justice. And he retorts crying, like, you killed my brother. Maybe one day they're going to find me with my blood draining in the sewer. And when I'm dead, I'm going to roast in hell. I believe that. But the trick is to get used to the idea while I'm here. And it's, it's, it's an incredible crime movie line. And um, I think like Ray gets what he thought he wanted. But again, like it does nothing to quell any of the Tempio family's mm. problems. And any sort of satisfaction he gets from his actions is incredibly short-lived because the movie has a devastating sting in its tail. Yeah, yeah. Um, Without spoiling, did you like the ending? Yeah, I thought it fits. I think more crime movies should end that way, to be honest. Really? Yeah, yeah. it seems like a the kind of blowout that should that probably does happen a lot more in crime families yeah I remember watching it because I, I saw this movie when I was way too young to watch it my dad just handed it to me on DVD and was like this movie's really good and um, I remember just being like wow <laughs> <laughs> because it's not the way movies tend to end yeah yeah very and, much so. uh, but watching it again for the second time it, it does feel woven through the movie yeah, yeah. yeah and it does sure. feel like it's been building to yeah, it but yeah, the first time s- it completely blindsided me yeah and it sort of blindsided me as well but looking back you can kind of see this, the cracks starting to fisher out and make everything that Ray uh, Chez and Larry Gallen? Johnny Johnny yeah. the Vincent Gallo character have built start to just sort of crumble and crack and turn to dust yeah as you heard in the intro this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network Here's a taster of one. Hi, sorry. Um, oh, God. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt your podcast. Yes. Sorry, uh, I'm young. Yes, I'm hot. And I'm gay. And we're young, hot guys. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Really, uh, I apologise for interrupting, but we have our own podcast. Yes, it's also on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting, but it's really good. And um, yeah, I didn't want to say this, but it's actually really, 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 really good. Really funny. Really funny. My mum says so. We are three guys, but we're not real blokey. Do you know what I mean? We're soft and friendly and nice. Yeah. Exactly. Like, like this timid request to ask you to listen to our podcast. Exactly. Yeah. We're not going to bash you over the head. No. We're approachable men. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, yeah. when you're finished this one, don't, yeah. don't, you know what I mean? Yeah, there's a good part coming up. But if you don't, we will bash over the head. I know people. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. No threat. I know that fates are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. 
Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 Euro plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Do you want to talk about Man on Fire? Yeah, sure. I'll make this quick, because we are sort of pressed for time. So, former CIA agent, uh, field agent John Creasy, played by Denzel Washington, goes to Mexico City on the recommendation of his friend Paul Rayburn, played by Christopher Walken, to take up a position as a bodyguard for nine-year-old girl Pito Ramos, um, the daughter of a guy who owns a couple of car factories in Mexico, played by Mark Anthony, and he's married to uh, Lisa, played by Rada Mitchell, and Peter is played by Dakota Fanning. So initially a suicidal alcoholic, Creasy begins to open up to Peter as he helps her train for a swim meet, but when the little girl is kidnapped, he goes on the warpath, slaughtering his way through the Mexican cartel to get Peter back. Peter Ramos, the number to you, you know, one more dead, but number. What was she to crazy then? She showed him it was all right to live again. And the kidnappers took that away, huh? And they're gonna wish they never touched the hair on her head. A man can be an artist. And anything, food, whatever. It depends on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is dead. He's about to paint his masterpiece. So I've spoken at length about this movie before, mostly because I think it's perfect in its dadcore maximalist style, combined with the minimalist character work by Washington. Uh, it feels like Tony Scott is creating a whole new style of filmmaking with the kind of choppy editing and the sunburnt, kind of hazy aesthetic. And I'm just a big, I'm biased as well as I'm just a big fan of the Grizzled Warrior Saves Innocent Child subgenre of action film. Like I'll watch any, any kind of movie like that. So I'll try to focus a bit more on walking here. I think Paul is, is instrumental in making the Creasy character feel alive again. Uh, not only does he get him the job interview with um, the Ramos family, but he supports him after the fact and continues to stand by him through the good and the bad. Uh, he's there at Peter's swim meet uh, and he's with his much younger Mexican wife mm-hmm. uh, with Creasy and they're they're all talking about like what a good job Peter did I think she won she wins um, even though like 20 minutes ago in the movie she's like I never win and even when Denzel Washington's like strong swimmer yeah <laughs> and um, they're obviously they're celebrating Creasy's kind of it's his it's as much his win as well because you know he's no longer this suicidal alcoholic he's like helping train this girl to be better the only way he knows how and um and he's also, he supports Creasy at his worst as well, not only by giving him the guns he needs to fuel his rampage, but explaining to others that not only is Creasy doing the right thing outside of a corrupt system, but that Creasy is doing the only thing he's capable of in a situation like this. Probably one of the movie's best lines where he's like, a man can be an artist in anything depending on how good he is at it. Creasy's art is death. He's about to paint his masterpiece. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. The other one is like, you move, you make one sound, I'll snatch the life right out of you. You understand me? For, for me, the other iconic walk and bit we were talking about before we start recording is he's kind of bragging about like his life that he has in Mexico, and Denzel Washington's like, yeah, yeah, and he looks real haggard, and he's like, do you think God will ever forgive us for what we've done? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Um, and I sort of have a theory that once the flames have died down, Paul is instrumental in getting Peta and her mother Lisa out of Mexico and maybe safely into the US. You know, I don't think I think he's John Creasy's only friend at the start of the movie anyway, but also his best friend. And I think, um, maybe I'm reading into it too much, but um, I think he's sort of that support net that allows Creasy to um, sort of redeem himself, mm-hmm. I think. 
I think he's um, like his connection to like a normal world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, can I talk about Catch Me If You Can? Absolutely. Um, this movie is directed by Steven Spielberg, based on the semi-autobiographical book of the same name by Frank Abagnale Jr. A lot of the claims made in that book continue to be called into question, so I won't get into specific details since we're meant to be focusing on walking, but like a lot of articles about this topic online if you're mm. interested. Um, the movie version of the story focuses on Frank Abagnale Jr., played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who, following the divorce of his parents, played by Walken and Natalie Bay, in the 60s runs away from home. Needing money, he turns to confidence scams to survive. Gradually, his cons get bolder and bolder, including him posing as a doctor, a lawyer, and a pilot. His crimes eventually gain the attention of a determined FBI agent with his own family troubles named Carol Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks, and the two become embroiled in a cat and mouse game. Just call her. Call her for me. You call her. You tell her I have two first-class tickets to go see her son. Your mother's married now to my friend Jack Barnes. They have a house in Long Island. I had an FBI agent come see me. You got their number, son. They're kind of scared. United States government champ running for the hills. Bow to the moon. It's over. I'm gonna stop now. But you've. They're never gonna catch you, Frank. That she wouldn't do that. Why won't you sit down? Come Why on, would she do that down. to you? Come on, sit with me. Have a drink. I'm your father. Then ask me to stop. Then ask me to stop. You can't stop. Where are you going? Come on, Frank. Where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going tonight? Someplace exotic? Where are you going tonight? Hawaii? Yeah, this is one of the most beloved movies of the 21st century, and uh, because of that, I was a little reticent to rewatch it, just because, like, what else is there to say about it? Um, mm. But it's just like, like a lot of Spielberg movies, it just moves. Like, you, you, <laughs> you watch five minutes, and you look down your DVD runtime, and it says you've watched 45. Yeah. And um, it is one of Walken's, like, only two Oscar nominations, and... Um, it felt important to cover for that reason and also it's great so why not champion it mm. um, what I love about the movie is that how yeah, I feel about Man on Fire exactly you know because <laughs> um, I talked a big game about watching like Wild Mountain Time last episode it's like no focus on yeah. like, good stuff yeah. um, you have Spielberg applying his typically kind of bravoure blocking and framing and scene transitions and attention detail to maybe the funnest subgenre of movie The Caper mm. like the con man movie so you have loads of these like long engrossing process oriented scenes you often have movies of this type where the lead character needs something and in order to acquire it they're gonna deploy this inventive form of trickery and deceit and you might not know how they're gonna do it when the scene starts but by the end of it you're like ah (laughs) I would have totally fallen for this um So you have all that done, but it's done in like particularly stylish and zippy fashion by Spielberg. And, you know, you think a lot of like Ocean's Eleven and like Matchstick Man or House of Games, you're watching it. Um, it's also set in the 60s. It's just such a good like evocation of the style of that time um, where being a Pan Am air hostess is the most glamorous thing in the world. Mm. And uh, everyone wore suits and fedoras all the time. <laughs> um, so you have this already like class movie happening. But inside of it, there's like another movie, which is like a lot more melancholic and wistful about the disintegration of a family and the impact it has on this lead character. Because like Spielberg didn't write the film like Jeff Nathanson did, but um, it does feel like a personal movie to him in that respect, because like separated parents are a big motif in his filmography. And if you watch the movie he directed about his upbringing, The Fablemans, you, you see why that is. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think this element makes Catch Me If You Can feel deeper and much more emotional than a lot of similar capers. So. Walken is Frank Abnale Jr.'s dad, Frank Abnale Sr. I'll call him Sr. to sure. make this easier. Yeah. But we, we meet Sr. at his apex. Like he's being presented an award by his community. He runs a successful business, a grocer's. He's got a beautiful French wife who he met while serving in World War II. And a son who looks like a young Leonardo DiCaprio. And you get the sense that Sr. is finally getting what he feels he's owed and that he's worked so long to acquire. And he gives this famous speech after receiving the award like, Two little mice found a bucket of cream. The first mouse gave up quickly and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he churned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. (laughs) Two little mice fell in a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that 
Eventually, he churned that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. <laughs> but it isn't long before you gather that, like, Senior getting to this level in his life, maybe not done entirely on the level. <laughs> and it's going to be short-lived because the, the IRS soon come calling and Senior starts being investigated for tax fraud. Then the money starts to dry up. It's hinted that his wife Paula starts having an affair with Senior's wealthier friend, uh, the guy who presented him with that award, played by James Brolin. Um, she eventually leaves him. Um, there's a pivotal scene in the movie where Senior is turned away from the bank after asking for a loan because he's being investigated for tax fraud. But he sets up a checking account at the same bank for Junior. And he puts $25 in it for his birthday. And Junior's like, why do business with people who turned you down for a bank loan? And Senior replies, because one day you'll need something from these people. A house, a car, they have all the money. From this day on, you're in their little club. And I think to Senior, there's like a chip on his shoulder about not being wealthy. Like he doesn't want to be looked down upon by that club. Uh, He wants to be part of it, to be affluent. And he's willing to bend the rules in an effort to get there. And... um, it's a bit like King of New York, although his crimes are you know, far less extreme here. Mm. But um, he's he's so charming and likable with the like two little mice speech, the way he recounts how he courted Paul as he dances with her, walking dancing again, uh, the way he looks with pride at his son when early on in the movie he gets in trouble for impersonating a teacher at his school for multiple days, <laughs> and every, no one no one thought to question it. Uh, <laughs> kind of impressive, but um, it, that all makes you sort of root for senior and. Um, a lot of the movie's emotional arc rests on the senior and junior relationship, or at least on the idea of fathers and sons, because it's clear that junior inherited a lot from his father, like his charm. We see junior copy little things he's seen senior do in tricky social situations, get what he wants, but also his willingness to bend the rules. And um, I think junior just takes those things to the nth degree. Like senior was only getting investigated by the IRS, junior by the FBI. You know? <laughs> and um, the thing that's interesting about Catching McCann is that it, it kind of makes the, the, the thematic choice that like, Junior, who's very young, is ultimately committing these crimes because like, he wants to acquire enough money to somehow bring his family back together. And there are the scenes peppered throughout the movie where Junior will reconnect with his dad and will show off his new wealth and share him with gifts, but will lie about how he got the money. And for the first couple of scenes, you can tell Senior knows that something is up, but it's unspoken. It's just like a glint in Walken's mm. eye. But you can also tell that like Senior doesn't care that Junior is getting this money from ill-gotten gains. Like, he's actually proud that his son has worked the system, mm. which is fascinating because I think society tends to think of parents as being the people who are meant to steer you on the right responsible path and Senior is the opposite of that. <laughs> Even when Senior eventually is visited by Hanratty, the Hanks FBI character, and he gets clarity on what's been happening. And by this point, Junior is starting to feel the FBI close in on him and confides in his father that he wants to stop conning and lying. Senior urges him to keep going. And he's, <laughs> he's like, you got their number, son. You got them scared. The United States government, champ, running for the hills. They're never going to catch you. And... It's just a really dysfunctional family relationship mm. that you don't often see in movies. But um, I think what's really powerful and devastating about Walken's performance is that every time Junior and the movie like touches back with him, his life has just gotten worse and worse. <laughs> like his battle with the IRS is draining his savings. Paula marries his old friend. He loses his business and has to get like a menial job late in life. But um, you sense in the scenes with Junior, like Walken Senior trying to like appear light and fun and unaffected by it all. However, when Junior mentions his goal of reuniting the family, you can feel Walken being like brought to the edge of tears and. Senior doesn't say it outright because it's too painful for him, but he keeps trying to get into Junior's head that like the family is never going back to the mm. way it was. And slight spoilers, but it's telling like the moment Junior finally gets what's coming to him for his crimes, he's outside in the winter cold looking through a window at his mother with her new family in this like firelit, warm, happy looking Christmas setting. And it's that's the moment when Junior realizes what Senior's been trying to tell him throughout the movie yeah. that, that those days are gone. And um, you couple all that with Hanratty, Hank's character, becoming this sort of de facto more responsible father figure to Junior and steering him on the right path. And it's just a really rich movie about yeah. family and home. And but uh, I think Walkman is like fundamental to the emotional core of the movie, working, and yet he's only in a handful of scenes. And a lot of how he gets that emotion across to the viewers unspoken and subtle. And um, I think it's what gets him like the very deserved Oscar nomination. Like he's arguably the MVP of the movie in a film with like a stacked cast. Like you know, I haven't said the words Martin Sheen, I haven't <laughs> said Amy Adams, Jennifer Garner, Elizabeth wow. Banks. You know, like they're all in this movie. Um, do you want to do some psychopaths? Yeah, sure. So Colin Farrell plays Marty Farinan, an Irish screenwriter in LA, working on a revenge movie script titled Seven Psychopaths. Wanting it to book against tropes of typical vengeance movies, but struggling with writer's block, Marty's friend Billy Bickle, played by an incredible Sam Rockwell, tries in several different ways to get him to finish it. However, Marty, Billy and Billy's friend Hans Kislowski, played by Walken, with whom he runs a dognapping business, are forced to go on the run after Billy and Hans steal a shih tzu belonging to a psychopathic gangster named uh, Charlie Coslow, played by Woody Harrelson. 
Put your hands up. No. What? I said no. Why not? I don't want to. But I've got a gun. I don't care. It doesn't make any sense. Too bad. Well, where are your friends? I don't know. Yes, you do know. No, I don't know. You do know! Shoot me then. Seven Psychopaths, your thoughts? I've got three exact words for that. You're damn fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is a lot of fun. Um, and it's a strange business to have, dog nipping business. How do you know you haven't kidnapped the same dog twice? That's, that's yeah, a good point. You know? yeah. well, I, guess he, like a, I guess you can do that. I'd say they, they would start to get... Suspicious. Yeah, yeah. it seems like a, it's the same guy brought it back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, seems like the kind of business a man close to his emotional breaking point, as Hans is, would have. Yeah, yeah. It's the only thing that's holding him together, along with his love for his dying wife, is his dog napping business. Well, his wife says, like, why don't you get like a, a proper job? And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, a good job for the government. And he's like, <laughs> <laughs> because like what's happened to Hans in life, like, you know, he doesn't trust institutions. Mm. Um, what I what I really like about walking in some psychopaths is that. The, the movie is about someone trying to write, I think, like a Tarantino-esque crime thriller and then being pulled into like a Tarantino-esque crime mystery. Mm. And you hear about like Hans, his character. It's like his name is Hans. He always wears a cravat. Yeah. He runs a dog napping business and Walken's playing him. And you're just like, he Walken could do that in a sleep. It sounds like <laughs> something out of Things to Do in Denver when you're dead. Like yeah. just a bunch of quirk. And then the movie is actually like, no, no, this is why he is like that. And that the cravat has like important significance mm. and that... He, the way he's so flippant all the time actually feels like a response to what he's been through his life because like him and his wife Myra suffered this horrible tragedy early on the life like the worst thing the mm. parents would ever have to face and they've gone through the thing where they tried to get revenge and it didn't make them any happier yeah. he does the whole like an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind Sam Rockwell retorts mm. how no there'd be like one guy left with one eye How's the last, <laughs> how are the blind guy gonna like take out his other eye, it's great. Gandhi was wrong, and no one has the balls to say it. As Gandhi said... Oh, you too, if it ain't Gandhi, Jesus Christ. An eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I believe that wholeheartedly. <laughs> no, it doesn't. There'll be one guy left with one eye. How's the last blind guy going to take out the eye of the last guy left who's still got one eye? All that guy has to do is run away and hide behind a bush. Gandhi was wrong. Just that nobody's got the balls to come right out and say it. I like the way the Zodiac Killer has a poster of Gandhi on his wall when Tom Waits and I didn't notice that Myra cool. find him. Well, yeah, not Myra, Myra, but like his, his, his wife. His yeah, wife, yeah. girlfriend, yeah. But, um... So they've been through this stuff, so, but they've got through it thanks to like their love and mm. their religious faith, like yeah. Quakers. And um, so like now he's just like, yeah, nothing is going to happen to me that's worse than that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Have some pride and don't tell these scum sucking motherfuckers anything. <laughs> He's okay. It's their blood, his puke. <laughs> that, that was a big trailer line, yeah. I remember. This is you my want writer someone f- to wipe the blood and the puke off? <laughs> <laughs> this is my writer friend that was... Uh, this is my writer friend I was telling you about. I knew I smelled booze. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, the funniest part of this is when after they escape from the house in Billy's car, they're, you know, they're going to the desert just, just before Woody Harrelson arrives to kill them. Um, is they're driving through the night. Colin Farrell and uh, Sam Rockwell are sitting in the front Walkins in the back but it's a dummy he's like asleep he's like meant to be asleep and he's tipped back like this and he's like at least 50 pounds lighter the clothes are <laughs> hanging off and he's look, he looks he looks like wax. he's made of wax it's so funny his head is tipped back he looks <laughs> dead it's really funny look out for it uh, if anyone is watching this um, next time yeah it's a very very funny visual gag that I'm not sure was intentional or not yeah yeah the bit where he rises from the grave with two guns oh, crossed over so his funny. chest. And when yeah. Sam Rockwell's giving his, like, take on what yeah, the screenplay yeah, should yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end of it, he's like, what do you think? He's like, I like it. It's got layers. <laughs> like a cake. <laughs> yeah. 
No, um, <laughs> this was Mark McDonough's follow-up to In Bruges' Golden Globe-winning debut, which is considered a classic now. And I remember being expectations pretty high for Seven Psychopaths, mm. particularly, you know, because it was him reuniting with Farrell and... Um, Made a lot of a bit of money and critics liked, but I don't think its tail has been as long as In Bruges or the movies that he would go on to make, like Three Billboards and um, Banshees of Inisherin. Mm. And um, actually, while doing press for Banshees of Inisherin, McDonough actually expressed some regret about making Sounds Like About Saying. He doesn't think it works because he was trying too hard to make a cool film and that it feels too much like an essay. And I think he's being hard on himself because I have a real soft spot for this movie. Partly because I watched it first time when I was like 17 or 18 mm. when I was getting really into movies. It's a movie about making movies or about writing. And it's, I, I find it really easy to like root forward, relate to like the Colin Farrell character, who's clearly like a stand-in for McDonough mm. because his name is like Marty. Martin, Marty. Yeah. His name is Martin Martin Farnan. Mm. Farnan is Martin McDonough's middle name. Yeah, yeah. But um, I also think it's a, a really fun, but like true reflection on the creative writing process because like you've written more creative writing than I have, but like. Well, anytime I've tried to do it, I really struggle with just like... It's like banging long... your head against a brick wall. Yeah. yeah, it's just like how long it takes, the discipline you need to have it yourself. I've heard so many interviews with authors being like, I wake up at 6am yeah. and I write till 3pm and then I live my life. And I'm like, <laughs> I have a job. Yeah. <laughs> and even if I didn't have a job, I love to sleep and be in my bed. But um, it's it's just really disheartening when you think you have an idea for something and for whatever reason, like it doesn't come out of the page the way you hoped it would or you can't expand on it in a satisfying way or... Or you just like just spend hours at your laptop screen uh, mm. with writer's block and nothing yeah. going on the page. But um, every once in a while, I have the itch to try it again, and it's usually when like a cool combination of words linger in my head, or I think of an image I'd like to see in a movie, or I listen to a song and how I would imagine I'd set a scene to it. But it's never like I have a beginning, middle, and an ending in my head. And I think like the Marty character in the movie is like that, where he is the idea for yeah. a movie called yeah. Seven Psychopaths. They're like, have you worked out who the Seven Psychopaths are? No, no. Yeah. Um, the whole thing where he has like um. There are these sequences interspersed throughout the movie where you see his screenplay and the plot line involving a, a Viet Cong member coming to America to get revenge on a group of American soldiers. And he's just like, yeah, I just like the idea of a Viet Cong fighter in a priest's outfit holding a snub nose 44. I know his story isn't going to end in nothing but carnage and horror, so I don't even want to write it. Yeah. But, um, and then like Walken's character at the end puts his twist on the story to be more optimistic and have better female characters, which is really funny, but also, <laughs> also sweet. Yeah. And, um, I get what he, McDonough means when he says the movie is a bit like an essay because I, I do think it is a bit about, it feels like a visual essay about a non-American making an American movie and sort of asking like, what is an American movie? Because hmm. you have like the Marty character, this Irish screenwriter in Hollywood who wants to make this artistic, tasteful crime movie and his only real friend in America, Billy Bickle, is like, what are we making French movies now? <laughs> and he he's like, no, shootouts. So he's like in pain. <laughs> and he hears that. And um, his name, even Billy Bickle recalls like Travis Bickle, hmm. taxi driver. He's so obsessed with violence, revenge, gore. And I think the idea of Marty wanting to write this movie, the Champions piece, but instead being uh, pulled into the sensational crime story involving like murder, desert shootouts, dog nappings, but also a bunch of like real horrors in America's past. You know, like two subplots in this movie revolver and racial hate crimes, references several real life unsolved murders. There's the way Marty keeps being drawn to this Vietnam War story. I think McDonough is trying to draw a correlation between real life horrible violence involving America and the violence shown in American movies that is presented in a more palatable way. Mm. And um, like the movie ends with like a burnt US flag blowing in the wind. Uh, <laughs> the place where Billy keeps saying is like the perfect place for a photo shoot is the Joshua Tree. Tom Waits is in this movie, the most American person. <laughs> yeah. You know, like you know, American icon. And um but I I, but I do think like the movie's not academic, like it's it's still really fun. Yeah. Really comic scapers dialogue. Mac McDonough's obviously like a giant of theatre, he knows language. Um the movies feel really pacey, they look great, I think. And um yeah, I just think this is like as a whole, like a lot deeper than like a Tarantino knockoff which I remember uh, some critics accusing it of being when it came out and um, I think that even applies to like the walking character where at the beginning you you see him and you're like yeah, almost like a stereotype of a walking character yeah. and then by the end of it you're like would take a bullet for this man <laughs> and like he is he's one of the seven psychopaths and there's moments where like he is sort of menacing like there's the scene where he's in hospital and he, he is face to face with Woody Harrison's mm. character after Woody Harrison has a uh, uh, done something really bad to him mm. and um, he's really scary in that yeah. and then there's the scene where Farrell tells him a story that it turned it happened to Walken mm. and Walken's like you got some details wrong yeah. and like, uh, like that bit's messing but he's also so sweet and like, yeah. I, I think the scenes with him and Myra are really lovely yeah. and I think that ending where he um, there's, a whole, there's a subplot in the movie where he starts to question his faith and the way that wraps up at the like his kind of final moments in the movie, mm. one of his final moments in the movie, it's just like walking, saying like five simple words in a daze, and it's just like 
wow, what a beautiful bow yeah. in the story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a really fun movie. That's like it's a it's a movie that starts off as kind of like a typical crime vengeance movie, but also becomes sort of pacifist by the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I'd def- definitely recommend this. And um, I think it's kind of nice that we've ended our walk-in episode on Seven Psychopaths because in 2012 he had this and a late quartet which I actually remember being a pretty good movie about aging classical musicians really good Philip Seymour Hoffman performance and that but um, he's probably in a few big movies since 2012 but I don't think the roles have had quite the same substance yeah. as the one that we've highlighted so I, I think he's overdue a plum part worthy of his talents yeah for sure yeah. there's never been an actor like him yeah. and might, might never be again that's very true here's hoping for Emperor Shaddam the fourth hell yeah yeah <laughs> um Email I know the facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please leave us an iTunes rating if you would be so kind. Uh, for those who want more of the pod, sign up to Headstuff Plus for five euro plus tax a month, where you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes of the show. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? Find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it, and at fortnightfights.wordpress.com where I'm talking about the most influential horror movies. Godzilla's up there right now, tearing things down. Uh, you can check me out at joe.ee. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.